Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a hiring surge at the IRS for customer experience and three steps for the VA to tighten its cyber posture. It's Thursday, August 25th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Salesforce. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Voting's open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. You can vote for your choices till September 30th. We announce the winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your votes in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Internal Revenue Service will hire as many as 87,000 new employees in the next decade thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. Those employees will go to IT, returns processing, and customer experience, among other areas of the agency. Paul Tatum's Executive Vice President, Solutions Engineer for Public Sector for Salesforce. Salesforce sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Paul, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on the program. When you see the IRS hiring like that, you see other agencies that are really driving employee attention and effort toward customer experience. And the White House even puts out an executive order on it. What's that say to you, Paul? Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Francis. It's good to talk to you again. And thank you for having me on the show. Uh, So it's really interesting, right? This has been a continual theme from government uh, to really equalize the experience that we see in our personal lives with all kinds of interactions, whether it be retailers, banks, et cetera, and saying, let's bring that experience to government. You know, I think historically over the years, we personally have been less than satisfied with some of those interactions, whether it be in our self-service space, our engagement space, and, and governments, um, you know, putting kind of their money where their mouth is and really trying to, to raise their game with that uh, personal experience. You told me before we started recording that you've been talking to folks all around the world, governments all around the world that are trying to focus on this. Is somebody else, and you can name them, you don't have to, but is is somebody else, some other country getting this better than we are as far as how digital experience, uh, digital transformation and customer experience tie together? Yeah. You know, Francis, I get an opportunity in my role to work with, you know, governments around the world. I think they're all at about the same place. And really what they're asking themselves as they go through their digital transformation is it's obvious they want to improve their customer experience, but, you know, kind of behind that is the, um, we want to reestablish or rebuild the trust that we know is needed in times of uncertainty. You know, we just got done with the pandemic. We thought we were kind of, okay, uncertainty is behind us. And lo and behold, there's economic, political, education, health, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. And governments play a key role in kind of uh, addressing or stepping into that uncertainty gap. And uh, the underpinnings of that is the trust that we want to have in our governments to really help us in these times. How much of that do you have a sense is from what challenges? Like, what do we know data-wise, if anything, about what generates that to then potentially think about what the solutions are? So, you know, I, I think that the, the trust index or the kind of the, if you were to measure, you know, how is government doing in trust, uh, you know, our Salesforce research team has just concluded a, a digital study on 8,000 surveyed government uh, customers and employees to say, you know, what needs to change in government to both build trust and to build, you know, kind of that digital bridge to their customers. 
And it would come as no surprise that, you know, the, the trust factor is way down. And when you look at us as humans, what is the anatomy of trust? It's, you know, consistency, it's transparency, it's competency, it's doing what you say you're going to do. You know, it's those small things uh, done every day uh, that starts to build trust. And so when you look at government services, one of the ways they know they can do this is by uh, engaging with us as customers in a consistent, transparent, competent way through the digital services. So that's a journey, as I call it, the journey of trust a little bit. Um, you know, trust is not earned in a big bang. It's earned every day through small steps. Does that mean that earning it back, though, has to happen in small steps, too? Or are there opportunities for government organizations to try to gain it back at a more rapid pace? I, I think, um, you know, for, for kind of the human behavior, kind of in my own personal experience, and I think if we look at kind of how we uh, look at trust, it is step by step. You know, the um, I think we are typically skeptical when someone makes a big, hey, guess what? I'm going to earn your trust back. I'm going to do something big. And you're like, okay, well, why don't we just prove it by some very small steps that I can observe, uh, see evidence of, and enjoy? You know, we'll take this one step at a time. So I think it's that consistency and authenticity coming out of the services, out of the communications, and then saying, you know, rather than overstep our, you know, our, tr our trust statements. Let's actually do what we're going to say, take the small steps, be consistent and uh, kind of prove it, you know? Uh, so th I think that's just how we operate as humans and we look for it. Um, you shot me a couple of takeaways from that report that you referenced a couple of moments ago. And the one that I think has the biggest impact on, on that trust element that you're talking about is the second one. Global crises increase digital demands. People just think completely differently about what they expect out of government now than they did in February 2020, don't they? They, they really do. And, you know, when we opened up our time together, you know, I mentioned the fact that we all hoped that we would be out of kind of this uncertainty of a pandemic. And I don't know, yes or no, are we? But uh, what we have entered into is the post-pandemic uncertainty that we didn't anticipate. And so when you look at that future of digital services and, and where governments are going, you know, they, they really do need to you know, step into that gap, step into addressing and developing the services that are needed. And what we saw was some agility, both in procurement in deployment, we saw some innovation uh, in uh, the kind of applications that got rolled out. Um, we saw some business re-engineering. Hey, rather than have them come into the office to complete a process, that's not possible. So let's re-engineer our processes. So there was a tremendous amount of proven uh, transformation in a very compressed amount of time that was uh, a breath of fresh air, honestly. And so we don't want to lose that. You know, I don't think, I don't think government does. I don't think our, uh, we as citizens and constituents want to. And so, you know, I think we all really need to take a look and say, what did we learn? What can we keep and what can we continue to move forward with? Yeah, that's exactly where I wanted to go next, Paul. What do you tell clients and potential clients 
when they ask you, how do we maintain the momentum? I mean, just about every federal official I talk to says we've accomplished over the last two years what it would have taken us five to 10 years to accomplish without the pandemic. Not that the pandemic was good, but there's a silver lining in this really big, dark cloud. And I imagine trying to maintain that momentum and continue to drive that change. And, and the business re-engineering is, I imagine, a big piece of that. But what do you tell somebody who's at that phase, who's thinking, okay, if we are out of this, I want to keep this momentum going, even though we're not still dealing with the pandemic problems? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of factors. So absolutely, we want to maintain the momentum of innovation and um, deploying of services and, and creativity. And uh, one of the things that we saw was uh, streamlined procurement. You know, we saw amazing, you know, um, things done in time of need that says, hey, we need to roll things out and we need to get uh, companies and, and uh, technology under contract and get it deployed. That, that's a hard one to solve, you know, long term because uh, we want to make sure that, you know, the procurement processes are fair and equitable and get the best price and best product for the government. But we always need to take a look at that and say, are we falling behind? Are we not delivering at the pace we want to due to that? And what can we do about it? The, the other thing is that um, I think that what the technology showed and kind of proved out, you know, I think up until the pandemic, there was a lot of promises. There was a lot of aspirational goals around the technology, whether it be cloud or platforms. And... Um, they had never been really proven, right? And in the time, in the crunch time when, when the pandemic hit, uh, what do you know? They they, they worked. Right? You could deploy uh, contact tracing, vaccine management, grants management in days and weeks, unprecedented, unheard of in government IT or any IT. That would not have been possible ten years ago. You know, it would have been like, hey, we got to go buy a bunch of stuff, build it, assemble it, uh, test it, and deploy it. So that momentum and that, you know, kind of technology model really proved out. And, and so I think we can definitely run with that uh, from a speed and agility standpoint. And then the, you know, the procurement decision-making kind of needs to keep pace. I mentioned the four takeaways and uh, the, the one that I mentioned, global crises, increased digital demands. Uh, the others were trust as the foundation of government business, technology powers, the trust transformation. And the fourth one I wanted to ask you about too, Paul, investment in the employee experience pays off for everyone. What kind of investment should agencies be thinking about making for their employees today? Yeah, well, it, you know, when you think, it, we've talked a lot about trust, Francis, in, in our time, and, you know, you can put technology in, you can provide, you know, that consistency, competency, transparency through technology to the, to the customer. But there is an employee behind that, right? When we think about our best, most trusted uh, relationships or engagements with a bank, a retailer, a government, there's an amazing employee behind it that has a little bit of latitude that can say, Francis, you know what? You know, you're such a good customer. You've been so consistent. Let me see what I can do for you. I have, I have the tools in front of me. I can see your history. I can see your profile. I can see that you're trusted. I can see that you're a good customer. So let me do something out of the ordinary. Uh, let me expedite it. Let me get you to the right person. 
Um, and then you walk away, I walk away from that experience going, these people are amazing. That organization's amazing. And so the employee experience, the most satisfied employees are the ones that can do the most amazing work possible on behalf of their customer, right? That's when you walk away at the end of the day going, I love my job. I was able to be effective and I made a difference. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes that isn't possible because shoot, I'm, I'm in a box as an employee. I have very limited range of data, visibility, um, access to tools that can help. And therefore, I can't really make some decisions or recommendations that I would like to. And so, um, you know, bring, you know, bringing in that technology, that transparency, both for the employee, as well as the customer just, you know, kind of brings it all together for that experience. It's not about, you know, uh, is their help desk any good? It's about have you empowered them to do the best work of their lives when they're serving you know, their customers. Paul Tatum, great conversation as always. Thanks for coming on the program today. Great. Thank you, Francis. Good talking to you. You can read more about the hiring influx that's coming to the IRS in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. From financial assistance to case management to vaccine management, Salesforce is your trusted partner for digital services delivery in the public sector. You can sign up now for Dreamforce 22 at salesforce.com slash Dreamforce or find a link in today's show notes. The Department of Veterans Affairs is missing three out of four marks it needs to hit in its identity management effort. VA's Office of Inspector General finds the problem is a turf issue. Nick Dahl is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations in the Office of IG at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Nick, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Three major findings in this work. Uh, I'll walk through each of them individually. Assigning roles and responsibilities to manage ICAM efforts. Implementing a single comprehensive policy. Implementing NIST digital identity risk management requirements. Start with the first one, assigning roles and responsibilities. That's that turf issue that I alluded to at the beginning, isn't it? Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yes, that, there is a bit of a turf issue. Uh, VA doesn't have a uh, designated office that's uh, overseeing the ICAM program. There is an office, but uh, they, uh, they only feel they should have responsibility over the personnel security and credentialing aspects, and, and maybe some of the policy aspects. They don't feel they have the necessary um, information technology and cybersecurity technical skills that they need to manage that. They feel that the Office of Information Technology should be handling that piece. So, you know, you have the Office of Security and Preparedness, which is part of the Office of Human Resources, heads that ICAM office, and you have OINT. And like you said, they, they can't agree on who has responsibility for this program. All right. You and your colleagues write oh, uh, the latest OMB policy issued in May 2019. OMB requires VA to designate an integrated office team or structure to effectively govern and enforce ICAM efforts. Where Whose responsibility is, to, is it to determine which one of these offices, which one of these organizations within an agency it should be? OMB puts that responsibility on the chief operating officer of an agency. So in the VA's case, that's the deputy secretary. Now, uh, the current deputy secretary has only been here since July of 2021. So he, he's walked into this. This has been a longstanding issue. I mean, even before the policy came out in 19, um, these offices have had a, the turf battle over responsibility. 
the, the deputy secretary we found had been briefed on some ICAM issues, but he hadn't been briefed on the, the dispute over who was responsible. Um, so that's why we, the main reason we wrote this report and issued some recommendations to the deputy secretary. All right. The second item that you and your colleagues write about is the VA hasn't implemented a single comprehensive ICAM policy or met goals established in its technology solutions roadmap for fiscal years 20 and 21. Uh, you write uh, out uh, VA's ICAM policies are outdated, don't meet the OMB requirements that agencies define and maintain a single comprehensive policy process and technology solution roadmap. What do they have now, Nick, even if it's not what OMB says they're supposed to have? So they, they have their VA Directive 6510, which is, you know, their overarching IT policy at VA. Um but it, it's just, it's, it's outdated. It doesn't hit anything that came about uh, based on the uh, 2019 requirements. Uh, you know, at one point, uh, the OSP uh, office was attempting to update it, but they stopped doing it because they didn't feel that they, um, that they had the expertise that they needed to update that policy. All right. The third item that you and your colleagues write about is that VA did not implement updated NIST digital identity risk management requirements. What is at the core of that and what is the problem that that's creating, Nick? Well, again, they, they haven't done anything to implement any of those OMB requirements. So that includes this, uh, all the new requirements that go along with digital identity. Um, we looked at a, a statistical sample of, of systems and found that they were non-compliant in almost all cases. They weren't. Uh, there was no evidence that they were um, identifying, doing, uh, or assessing the risks with identity proofing or authentication, or that digital identity acceptance statements were completed. All requirements that are in place. Um, what is the, you and and you you cited this a moment ago. This is the way you wrote it. February twenty one, due to a lack of resources, technical expertise, uh, the HRAOSP chief security officer directed the office of ICAM staff stop updating VA Directive sixty five ten and accompanying handbook. What was what did they say that they were lacking? What did they not have that they needed in order to be able to do this work? That sounds like it's really important. So. The office, security preparedness, right? So to me, that's, you know, I think more kind of a law enforcement function, right? A security function as opposed to an information technology. So he, the, the director of the uh, ICAM office was pretty clear with us that he did not feel his staff possessed the IT and cybersecurity cyber technical skill sets and IT systems experience they needed to work effectively uh, with this program, and they really felt that OIT has that skill set or should have that skill set and should own that piece of the process. Um, you write, OIG found neither the deputy secretary nor his office been involved in coordination of the ICAM efforts across the enterprise since the OMB memo in 2019. How much of that could potentially, or is, maybe, we know for a fact, I don't know, um, how much of that is the fact that that office by its nature is transitional? It's a political appointee. Uh, the average lifespan of a political appointee is 18 to 24 months. And so there's, there's that churn problem that exists in the, at least the job, if not the office, uh, that has to oversee this. 
Right. I, I think you're you're right on with that. That's a part of the issue. And it, it goes for the same for the Office of Human Resources and the Office of Information Technology, especially OIT. There has been a number of CIOs over the last five to 10 years. Uh, the, the average lifespan in that position is probably less than a year in the last five years. Um, so that makes it difficult. There's changing leadership and uh, no one no one is truly taking responsibility for this. All right. You connect this to the overall security posture of the agency, which is, uh, it strikes me as entirely correct because we speak on this program all the time about ICAM being a pillar of zero trust, which is a mm-hmm. big administration priority. This is how you phrase it. OIG is annually demonstrated in its FISMA audits, VA's weakness in implementing proper monitoring and governance controls in determining whether users have the right access to perform their job functions. What fixes that in your view? What's the recommendation that you make specifically regarding that? Because that's not just these three out of four ICAM issues, it sounds to me, Nick. It sounds like that's an underlying issue of the overall security posture of the entire organization. It is. And, and, you know, we make recommendations in our annual FISMA report uh, related to that. But I do think that this report will be helpful in that we, I think for the first time, we are calling attention to this issue to the deputy secretary. And we are making, we made recommendations to him um, that they, that he that he appoints uh, the appropriate office to oversee this. We didn't tell him which office, that's really up to him but he just has to have a single point of responsibility for this program. And, and along with that, once, once he makes that decision as to which office is responsible, it should follow that the, the policies come into play. And OMB and the, and the playbook are pretty, pretty well-defined and pretty specific on how to, how to run an ICANN program. So I think that all the pieces are in place for VA to get uh, in compliance here, and it shouldn't be that difficult. They just need someone to own it. Another recommendation where you uh, are a little more prescriptive as far as who should own it, you write the OIG also recommended the Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology update and publish the directive and handbook associated with ICAM to include NIST requirements. That's a pretty specific assignment. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear to us that that needs to be done. It it's, hasn't been updated in a while. And, and I mean, even here, we're more than three years out since these requirements came into play. All right. Uh, another assignment for this one for the Assistant Secretary for HRAOSP to update and publish VA directives and handbooks associated with HSPD-12 and a VA's Personnel Security and Suitability Program. That, it appears, is already codified by VA's, you write, VA's Enterprise Directives Management Procedure. So that's kind of a policy that's already exists that just hasn't been executed on, it sounds it like. It hasn't gone through all the formal review processes, but according to their response uh, that they provided in, in July, uh, it should be in place by the end of the fiscal year. All right. From your perspective, Nick, how do you go back at some point? What will you look for at some point beyond the kind of the letter of compliance with these recommendations? to ascertain that the agency's moving in the right direction and all of the individuals and, and, and organizations that you've made recommendations to here are moving in the right direction? Well, we do have a, a pretty rigorous follow-up procedure where we, we do hold them accountable for implementing the action plans. So we, we won't close those recommendations till we feel confident that they've addressed those recommendations. We'll continue to look at this issue year after year on FISMA. 
And if there's any indication that there's still issues here, you know, it's always a possibility that we could come in and do a, a follow-up. It might be, you know, targeted, not as broad scope as this project, but uh, always a possibility we could go in and do that. You anticipated my last question, which was going to be, is this something that will make it into your annual FISMA evaluation to follow up on? Yes, I expect it will. Nick Dahl, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. You can find a link to the work Nick's team did in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Monday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.